Well, good morning. It's good to be with you. My name is Matt Kerber. I'm a pastor at City Reform. We're going to dismiss our children for Children's Church. As you know, we've made a couple of changes as we've adjusted to our new place. And just to be clear, um, parents, you can dismiss your kids and they, they can walk themselves back or you can take them back, but our teachers will be right, waiting right here. Uh, children's Church teachers waiting right by the door. They're going to walk them back, but we ask parents as we close and move to our final song, would you go get your children yourself? It's that part of the, of the movement that's essential for you to engage with, so we ask you to go out and get them yourself. We're working through a book of the Bible called Zechariah, an Old Testament prophet, uh, speaking to God's people after they return from their exile in Babylon. Uh, today we'll conclude this first part of the book, and uh, Joseph will preach next week. We'll have a, a chance to catch our breath and, and uh, uh, renew our vision, but then we'll be back into Zechariah as we lead up to Easter. Um, a section, the second section of Zechariah is the part of that book, actually the, the part of the Bible most quoted in the passion narratives uh, other than the book of Psalms. So as we move towards Easter, we'll be reading again and again and again references in Zechariah to a coming king who has been pierced for his people. It'll be a great movement towards Easter. In this first part of Zechariah, we've seen a, a great focus on the rebuilding process. The people who'd returned from their exile were rebuilding their city, rebuilding the temple, seeking God's presence. Uh, the passage this week in chapter 8 is linked to the passage last week. Now, both of them are stirred up by a request. The people have come to the uh, temple from a, a neighboring city uh, in, in Judah, and they've, uh, they've talked to the prophet and to the priest uh, who was there, and they've asked the question, uh, we've been waiting for God to rebuild his people. Is now the time? In fact, we've been fasting and mourning for 70 years after the destruction of our city, the destruction of our temple. Now that we're back, do we keep fasting? And the answer that we were given last week is a, uh, was to move them beyond the immediate question of do we fast or not, and to instead ask them, what is fasting for? And the prophet Zechariah, like the former prophets before him said, the point of fasting is that you would desire God's kingdom and that you would desire to see his work in the world. What we see as we look here today is a picture of a, a community that's been transformed by that sort of vision. In a sense, Zechariah is saying, if you embraced God's purposes, what would your city look like? But he turns their direction to the future and motivates them with a future picture of a glorious city. We'll also see as we read the passage repeated references to fasting, but a fasting that moves to feasting, anticipation of God's work among us. I'll read the passage and then we'll dive in and look at it in detail. Zechariah chapter 8, and the word of the Lord of hosts came saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with a staff in hand because of great age, and the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if it, is a marvel, if it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of these people in those days, 
Should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Let your hands be strong. You who in these days have been hearing these words from the mouth of the prophets who were present on, that, on the day that the foundation of the, temple, of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, that the temple might be built. For before those days there was no wage for man or any wage for beast, neither was there any safety from the foe for him who went out or came in, for I set every man against his neighbor. But now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts. Nor shall there be a sowing, uh, for there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit, and the ground shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give their dew. And I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so will I save you, and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. For thus says the Lord of hosts, as I purpose to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts, so again have I purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month, and the fast of the fifth month, and the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth, shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore love love truth and peace. Thus says the Lord of hosts, People shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many people and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, the the first thing we notice as we look at this passage is that it has a future orientation. I went through the passage and underlined everything that had a future reference, and I I came up with about 20 things. And we'll see, uh, God says, I will dwell, I will call. Uh, This shall again uh, be great blessing in Jerusalem. It shall be full of boys and girls. In those days, I will save, I will bring, I will be their God, they shall be my people. He speaks of a vine that shall give fruit, of dew that will fall on the grass, of a sowing of peace, and God will cause the remnant of people to return. He will save them. God will bring to the house of Judah seasons of joy and cheerful feasts. People shall yet come, and they shall go to one another, entreating them to come to the Lord Lord of hosts. And many people shall come to seek God in those days. God will work. 
So it's clearly a passage that has a future orientation. It's also a passage that is full of rich images of blessing. Good things are happening as we look at the passage. Uh, For instance, we see first of all in verses 4 and 5, an image of old people and young children living in safety. And this is very different from the warnings we heard last week where uh, we heard the warning of the prophet that the marginalized of their society were being mistreated. Instead, we have people, the old and the young, living in safety, dwelling in blessing. We also see pictures of abundant harvest and a thriving economy. Verses 10 and 12, there's a a blessing of fruitfulness in the crops and people who have good wages for their labor. There's a uh, a section about the fasting turning to feasting, verses 18 and 19, where they had been mourning uh, the judgment of God, their destruction of the city, their move into exile. Now, in the return of exile, there's joyous feasting that celebrates God's blessing. And finally, in the closing picture, we have an image of uh, the love of God going out to the nations. This has been a blessing that God had promised from the beginning when he first called Abraham to himself, the the father of Israel. He said, one day the nations will be blessed through you. And and we hear these voices that are compelling for uh, people who are uh, followers of God. We long for our neighbors to know the truth. But in this this image, the the neighbors themselves, the nations are, are clamoring to know God. There's an eagerness in the part of the surrounding people, and they will uh, grab hold of, of, it says, of one Jew. Ten men will grab his robe and say, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. It's a really compelling image of great a revival of spiritual interest. So we have a future reference. We have a, a, a good future that is portrayed before them, and we have a problem, Uh, a challenging interpretive problem, and the more you wrestle with it, the harder it gets. And the question is simply, when will these things happen? What is Zechariah telling us here, and when should we expect it to happen? If you uh, have a bulletin insert, you can turn it over and see a little picture on the back of it. This was such a perplexing problem that I needed to draw a picture. Those of you who know me well know that whenever I get excited, I draw pictures. It might be on a napkin as we sit across the table drinking coffee, or if there happens to be a whiteboard in the room in any given meeting, uh, when I get really excited, I start drawing. So this is for you. It might not be as exciting for you to receive it. Um, But if you look on the far left, you see a little stick figure representing Zechariah. Uh, If we were to imagine an axis going to the right of time, Uh, From Zechariah's perspective, there are three options of future events for Zechariah that could be referred to. Uh, The the dating of this prophecy in the beginning of chapter 7 locates it in 518 B.C. Two years later, in 516, the temple would be complete. It is possible that the future Zechariah is thinking about refers to the restoration of Israel as the temple is complete. The, the uh, second option is that Zechariah may be looking forward to the coming of the Messiah or the Christ and his kingdom. There are many things in the book that cast the vision forward, that look forward to a uh, far beyond their immediate experience. Jesus, in his resurrection, poured out his Holy Spirit on the church, and the, the first fruit of great blessing is found in his kingdom. 
A final option is that Zechariah may be looking forward all the way to the end. Some of the language he uses here is picked up in the book of Revelation to describe a final picture, one in which Jesus returns and all of the uh, humans are res- uh, share in his resurrection and those who know and love him enter into the new Jerusalem, the great city, as all of the hopeful pictures find their conclusion. And so as we look at these, these options are all available in the biblical story. Um, We find ourselves asking, which of it is it that Zechariah is thinking about? And that's where it gets tricky. I found myself remembering the words of the the Grinch who stole Christmas, um, who puzzled till his puzzler was sore. And uh, I I was puzzling this week, as are, are the scholars and commentators who wrestle with this passage. And the answer that we're given as we think about timing is an answer that challenges us to rethink the purpose of biblical prophecy. If you were in the adult Sunday school class, you may remember that the beginning of his book, Study in Zechariah, Solgi Byun said, we usually come to prophecy asking when, but generally that's not the purpose. From Zechariah's perspective, he's not particularly interested in giving us the when. In fact, if we look at our little picture here, the thing that Zechariah sees is as if he's looking at all of these movements of God's redemption coming together at once. There are elements of what he says that could apply to different phases, but it doesn't quite fit to any one of them. Rather, this is a future vision that Zechariah uses to show us a picture of the way God works to bring redemption into the world. I mean, there are things in here that clearly relate to an immediate fulfillment, a reference to the rebuilt city, a reference to the rebuilt temple, the expectation that God would be at work in their midst. But the problem is the full scope of this prophecy simply doesn't match what we know in biblical history or world history. While Jerusalem was rebuilt, there really wasn't any golden age that followed close on the heels of Zechariah's ministry. Instead, God's people would continue to endure great hardship. They would fall backwards time and again into struggle and rebellion. They would need further ministry from Ezra and Nehemiah to even complete the rebuilding of the city. The prophecy of all the nations coming to the mountain of the house of the Lord matches some of the same prophecy we read from Isaiah in our call to worship, but it simply doesn't happen in the immediate context of Zechariah. Many of the things rather seem to point forward to the kingdom of the Lord Jesus. It's in him that we see a great outpouring of the Spirit and the nations responding in faith. We see the first fruits of the nations coming to God, and we hear of people who long to know God as they hear the gospel and respond to Jesus the King. But the full and final realization of this passage is found most vividly in the book of Revelation as the Lord brings restoration and renewal to all things. The new Jerusalem comes down out of the heavens Uh, we are told, and God dwells permanently and completely with his people. This is a future hope. If we were to think of it from our perspective, the restoration from the temple is really our past. It happened in in the past, uh, 516 B.C. the, The kingdom of the Lord Jesus from his resurrection until his return is our present 
But the, resurre- uh, the, the final resurrection and the restoration of all things is our future. The concern that Zechariah has is not to delineate exactly what happens when, but he is using this picture of future realities to stir his people into greater love for God and faithfulness in their service. In other words, Zechariah doesn't uh, clearly link his image to any, any of these three restorations, but they are, in a sense, characteristic of all of them. They are pictures of God's work in the world. And what he's doing here is not giving us an, an, uh, an outline of world history. He's not giving us the newspaper in advance. We would probably like that, but that's very rarely what the biblical prophets do. Rather, he's showing us how God's promises of future hope are meant to lead to our faithful building now. As these people in 518 B.C. were called to complete the temple, and even more importantly in this passage, turn their attention to the building of their city, the care for their people, and the human flourishing in their present city, so too a vision of future hope encourages us to be faithful in the moment. Let me uh, change your frame of reference for a moment as we step out of this world of biblical prophecy. I recognize this can be very foreign to many of us, but the practice of using a future hopeful image to stir our current actions is so common that once we start to look for it, we find it everywhere around us. You can imagine the simple image of a, uh, a young boy or a young girl who uh, desires to begin a course of physical fitness, and they might put up a picture in their home gym of someone that they would hope to be like after lifting weights. And this may be you know, dating me a little bit. This is what young people would do in ages past. And I'm going to look like that guy. This picture of future hope that stirs you to faithful activity in the present. But this image is found in very, very powerful ways as we are challenged to think about hope for the world around us. In the uh, year 15, uh, 1516, Thomas More wrote a book called Utopia. It was, it was a, a fanciful uh, picture of an island that he had heard discovered. And it was an island where everything was good. Uh, the word utopia, many scholars to believe, believe is something of a pun. Uh, it means literally no place. The word Greek word tapos means place. On one hand, it means not a place. On the other hand, it sounds very similar to a Greek word that would be good place. In his utopia, Thomas More painted a picture of a society very much unlike the one he lived in, but one in which people live together flourishing and thriving. This fictional good place was meant to stir and challenge the people of his world. Well, the concept of utopia has been present in many forms in many places, but we tend to use it now to refer to striving for a perfect place. Throughout human history, many people have been striving to build their own utopia, perhaps by settling into a commune or taking control of their government. In fact, I think we can recognize that many of the political speeches that we hear around us now actually use forms of utopian image to motivate our behavior. Some politicians would like us to be more like Denmark. Others would like like us to be more like 1950s America. But depending on your vision and your utopia, the method is the same. 
We use images of future hope and say, this is what we can be. This is the good place. Don't you want to be there? Vote for me or buy my product. With this home gym, look what you can become in only 90 days. It's sort of a personal utopian image. Well, in a sense, uh, Zechariah is doing the same thing. The difference is not the method, but the difference is the substance. Zechariah is using this picture of future hope to challenge their present activity. As we look at his picture, I'd like to observe five things. We'll see them uh, here. You can follow along in your outline. We'll kind of be brief, try to be brief on each of them. But I want to think about how, how we, too, need to respond to a vision of future, future hope if we want to live faithfully in the present. Uh, the first observation we want to make is that while this passage is generally not viewed as being one that has a strong emphasis on a Messiah or a Christ, the book of Zechariah as a whole does. This image, this picture of future hope and future reality is embedded in a book that is teaching the people to look for a future prophet and a future king and a future priest who will bring God's perfect rule. When we begin to read it in that light, it's not surprising that we would find really strong correlation between this vision and the teaching of Jesus. In a sense, if you were to simply look at the uh, prophecy of Zechariah and overlay upon it the map of Jesus teaching about the kingdom of God, you would find strong resonance. Last fall, as we walked through the Gospel of Matthew, we were reminded, and in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is reported to teach primarily about the kingdom of God. And as we worked through the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, we saw all of the ways in which Jesus taught people to have both a future hope, but one that shaped their present reality. When we talked about the, the kingdom of God in the New Testament, we recognize that after his resurrection from the dead, Jesus, seated at the right hand of God, pours out his spirit, and that the kingdom of God is for us, in a sense, already present, but not fully. We continue to be people that struggle in a world of brokenness and hurt, we struggle and live under the shadow of death with a hope oriented towards the future. You may have heard many of our songs today, this, this vision of future hope. The, 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 uh, the songs that sang about God making all things new as we wait for him to work. Together, these two aspects of seeing God's presence now through the Holy Spirit and yet waiting for the fulfillment of the kingdom in its completion, this tension, this already but not yet, shapes the reality of Christ and his kingdom, and it's very much at home in Zechariah's prophecy. And just as the kingdom of Jesus concerns spiritual realities and physical things, these two are present as we look in the prophecy of Zechariah. The second thing we'll note as we look at it is the way in Zechariah it gives us such a strong physical picture of God's restoration. In a sense, he's reminding us of the physical aspect of God's kingdom. Sometimes uh, Christians are tempted to think about God's renewing work as being merely a spiritual thing or a, uh, a sort of a thing that happens in your head or in your heart. And we think of heaven, the great restoration, we're sometimes tempted to think of people that are sort of disembodied spirits floating on the clouds, uh, playing disembodied harps. 
and having peaceful thoughts. But in the Bible, restoration is always very physical. It is true that to be dead is to be present with Christ, but even that is a waiting, a waiting for the resurrection of the dead, a future reality in the new heavens, in the new earth, in which this world is renewed. Zechariah reminds us of that in very uh, gritty and strong language. He reminds us that the hope of the kingdom is a hope that's meant to transform our world now and to cause us to look with hope to the future for the new Jerusalem. Look at the different ways he does that. He has an image of a, a city in which uh, the men are gro- and the women are growing old and the young people are playing in joyfully on the streets. That's a compelling I- image, isn't it? In some ways, it's, it's not exactly heaven. The people are growing old. Presumably, they're dying. But it's an overlay of God's purposes and plans on the human experience And perhaps in the restoration of Jerusalem in 516 B.C., they got something of a taste of that. Having returned from exile, watching their city rise up from the ashes, there would have been something of a taste of all that God meant for them, all that God was doing. In this, we see other pictures as well, Uh, pictures that are very earthly and at the same time somewhat utopian, we might say. Uh, The images of a a land that is abundant in its harvest, of dew that falls thickly on the ground, of vines that have great fruit, of workers that earn good wages. Again, I think we'd all agree that doesn't quite fit of anything we would expect in the new heavens and the new earth. It's a, a deeply now sort of blessing. In fact, many of the texts themselves seem to urge them to think now, after the rebuilding of the temple, see what God is doing. There's an earthiness to these things that reminds us that the hopes of God's people throughout all ages is a restoration worked out in our world. Because of that, we see a third reality that in this passage is a direct tie to human response something that we are meant to do. And this is a way, in a sense, all visions of uh, uh, future hope, all utopias function this way. Uh, A a scholar from uh, St. Louis, Missouri, who specializes in this sort of thing, says the way utopians work is by presenting an image of a great future It calls people to action in the present. So just sort of a normal human way to operate. Well, it's not a surprise that this is what Zechariah is doing. In light of this picture of restoration, God's people are called to live differently. Our third observation is a human response is called for. In verse 16, it says, These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. You may notice, if you remember from last week, that this is very similar. The things they were commanded not to do and that were the essence of their fasting. Don't do these things. Don't render false judgments. Don't oppress the marginalized in your society. Don't do evil in your hearts. These things are repeated here. In, in light of the future hope, God's people are called to live differently and to act differently. These are very high concepts, but just think for a moment of the ministry of Jesus. 
Jesus was obviously concerned about spiritual things. He was concerned about peace with God, reconciliation through his sacrifice on the cross. But Jesus was also concerned about the actual people he met. He cared for those who were on the edges of society and drew them into his people. Uh, he lifted up a, a child and says, to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. He healed the sick. He fed the hungry. He battled against spiritual powers that oppressed people around them. Jesus cared for the totality of people. And so the calling of the church is to live out the kingdom in our present moment. It's not here perfectly. We don't expect all things to be made perfect in the very near future. But as people with this future hope, we are called to be transformative agents in the life around us. This particular passage in Zechariah is a theme passage for a local ministry called the Pittsburgh Project. Many of you have worked with us before. The Pittsburgh Project deals with the very fundamental, practical, physical needs of people. Twice a year, deacons from our church lead us outward into service. And through the Pittsburgh Project, we build the homes of those that are at need and vulnerable in our city. We re literally help rebuild their homes. The Pittsburgh Project engages in programs on the north side, and in a similar manner, each summer we commit ourselves to ministry in Homewood through Bethany Baptist Church as we seek to help a summer program that's actually helping kids in a very difficult neighborhood. These are really expressions of Zechariah chapter 8. We are people that long to see a city where the children can play in safety. We long to see a city where the, the old people can grow old. In the passage, and it says they have a staff, it's meaning it's a good thing. In a, in, a, in a society that doesn't have justice and doesn't have care for one another, the old don't grow old. They die young. And for the old to be protected in their vulnerability to reach, as we might say, a ripe old age in the security of the city is a sign of blessing. And for Christians, this ought to be for us a great hope and a great desire that we would see people transformed in this way. But there's more to the vision. I think the nature of utopias is it's hard for us to hold good ideas together. The same scholar I mentioned before says the nature of any utopian vision is it's easily fragmented, grasping only part of an ideal reality. I think that is often our experience as well. Zechariah, however, presents a full-orbed vision of a good place, a place that is beautiful and desirable. The fourth thing we'll notice at the center of his, of his vision is the presence of God. Verse 3, God says, I will return and I will dwell again in the midst of my people. Verse 7, God says, I will save my people. Verse 8, I will bring them to dwell. They shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. The vision of hope found in the Bible is one where human relationships are transformed, but at the heart of that vision is a spiritual connection to the living God. And it's at this point where a biblical vision of hope for the future often departs from our secular views of the good world or the good place. As we said in our study in the Gospel of Matthew, in biblical Christianity, you can never have the kingdom without the king. 
And yet modern tendencies are for us to isolate the human aspects of God's kingdom and discard the presence of God himself. Often Christians who are led into deeper visions of a restoration of their city and of their society can leave behind these parts that the secular world finds harder to accept. But Zechariah's vision, like the ministry of Jesus in his kingdom, is one that always insists that God must be at the center of all of our visions of hope. In other words, what we do as we gather here today, worshiping God as his people, it cannot be separated with what we do tomorrow morning and throughout the week as we move outward in service in our jobs with our neighbors in the ways we volunteer. There must be a joining together of our desire to see God present and our desire to love our neighbors in ways that reflect his character. And yet it's easy for people to grasp just one of these sides of this great vision. Sometimes Christians settle for a view of the kingdom without the king, a bunch of moral principles that are aligned easily with any of our major political parties. We have no use for a God. He essentially becomes inconsequential in our system of how something can be good. And this can happen in a wide variety of political ways, right? In the same manner, some Christians are tempted to view their spirituality as being separate from what they do in the world, as if prayer and worship are things totally unrelated to what we do as we work and as we engage with our neighbors. What we see as we look at Zechariah is a hope for a God's work in the world that is flowing from the presence of God. That's really what is at the heart of this passage. It's God coming to be with his people that changes everything. And we look in the history of the church, we found time and again that the church has renewed its passion for God, its return. We sometimes call this revival. And in each of these periods of renewal and revival, there has been an outflowing of concern and care for the world around. In fact, we can often trace them quite closely. I'm going to pull back from all the historical details I really want to share with you right now, and I'm going to stay tied in our passage. The hope is a hope of God's presence changing everything, and that means, finally, that the future really is good. What we see here in verses 18 and 19 is the idea the feasts will turn, the fasting will turn to feasting. The the story of the Bible is one in which fasting, uh, the practice of self-denial, is woven into the life of God's people, both in the Old and New Testament. It's a tool that reminds us God's not fully here yet. I must dedicate myself to His purposes, learning to say no to desires, committing myself to His work. But the story of the Bible ends in a feast. It's not here yet, but in its fullness, in its goodness, it is a celebration beyond what we can imagine. The book of Revelation speaks of this climax of human history and says of a similar sort of style of prophecy, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. In the Christian story, that's where we are headed. We're not there yet. We we can be cautious about people who promise that just around the corner is some new utopian reality where all of our needs will be met and everything will be perfect. 
We can also recognize that the call to engage in, in God's kingdom sometimes brings suffering to our here and now. The more you're concerned with the problems of your neighbors and the difficulties in our society, the more difficult your life may become. But because we know we're moving to a future hope, a feast that's beyond all imagining, we can both be realistic and optimistic. We long to see God work, but we also long to see God present and know there's no hope without Him. Four years ago, NBC debuted a sitcom called The Good Place. Uh, building on these great ideas of uh, uh, utopian visions and, and, and the, uh, the hope of an afterlife find, found in many world religions, uh, the NBC show The Good Place was both entertaining and cleverly written. It's one of the few shows I've watched. Uh, if you know me, I don't watch a lot of TV, so every once in a while I get a contemporary cultural uh, reference. Uh, full of good characters, witty dialogue, ingenious concepts, serious discussion about what it means to be human, there was much to be recognized and applauded. And yet the most noticeable absence of the good place for any Christian is that in this conceptual utopia, this afterlife in a good place, there was no God. It is essentially a picture of heaven without God, an afterlife in which all needs eventually will be met, all desires will be fulfilled, but there is no, in that vision, no vision of a God himself who is present and eternally, infinitely interesting. And so in the conclusion of The Good Place, I'll try not to give too much of a spoiler, the characters find to their surprise that The Good Place becomes somewhat boring endless fulfillment of all interest becomes boring. And the vision of a reality, a future reality that meets all our needs, a vision with no God, offers nothing of infinite or eternal value. That is not Zechariah's vision. His vision of his good place, the good place, the place of God, the place of feasting where all dreams are fully fulfilled, is the place where our dreams are transformed, where God himself is present in a powerful way. We have a taste of that now. May we be a people who care deeply for restoration around us in the here and now, in our jobs and in our volunteering, in our ministry of our church. We seek to be a, see Pittsburgh, a city where God is made known and human flourishing is visible. But we do it never, never sacrificing our commitment that God's presence alone is our great hope. The, the good news of the gospel, Jesus Christ, who died in our place and was raised from the dead, is the heartbeat of our vision of a good place, a good place where God can be known and he can be with his people. May we be animated by that vision. Let's pray together.